How are we doing, King's Church? It's a pleasure to be able to preach the Lord, preach the gospel to you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt, if we haven't met yet. And uh, I'm excited to be back in the, the book of John. And, and uh, it was great to be in Nashville last week and, and know you guys were in great hands. And Jenny and I got to spend some time with, with uh, my mentor, Jim Barnes, who many of y'all have met before. And it was just a great time, great time. You know, we're entering into Thanksgiving season real quick and uh, super excited. Next week we get to go out to the cabin and have a Thanksgiving dinner together and talk about the different things that we're thankful for. And I'm so thankful for what God is doing uh, in many of your lives. It's cool to say. I'm so thankful for so many things. And one of the things that became obvious to me that I was thankful for this morning was we may be probably the only Presbyterian church in the country that worships with the worship leader having a tambourine. Amen, right? Amen. Listen, we set apart for the kingdom of the Lord, right? Praise God. We love that. Um, so jump back into the Gospel of John this morning. Oh, I also wanted to mention this. As some of y'all can see right in front of me, can't see a ton yet, but um, that we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning. You'll see this insert in your order of worship. If you want to look over that, that'll give a little bit of information about what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, but it'll also give you all a little bit of information about how we do it here at King's Church. I'll explain that in a minute right after the, the, sermon, the sermon's over, but just for you guys to know that that is there. Um, so, the title of the sermon this morning is called Soul Harvest. Soul Harvest. One of the things that we see in this passage, and John chapter 4 is such a cool passage, it's, that we could talk about it in, from so many different angles, and we have. We've spent three, this is the third week that we've been in John chapter 4, as we're preaching through the gospel of John. But in this, in this passage, Jesus challenges his disciples to open their eyes to the harvest that is all around them. He, he is saying to them that in their midst, the fields are ripe and ready for it to become in, that there is a harvest of souls, people who are going to find eternal life in Jesus Christ. But the problem is that they are completely blind to it. And we'll look at that. The purpose of the Gospel of John, he states in chapter 20 and verse 30, when he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the thesis. Jesus is a Son of God. He's a human and he's a man all at the same time, and he is the appointed rescuer, like we sang about just a minute ago. He's the appointed rescuer to come and deliver us from our sin, deliver us from the wrath of God that awaits us if we put our faith in Jesus Christ and repent of our sins. So that's the goal. So how does this passage, how is this passage part of John accomplishing that goal? Jesus has been speaking to this sinful Samaritan woman and, he, and, and this is a completely a cultural no-no for Jewish men. To talk to women, women in public in general was something that they did a lot, but in specifically to talk to a, a woman and a Samaritan woman, they had, these nations had severe hatred for each other, right? And then to talk to a, a scandalous, someone who was known in the society as a scandalous, sinful Samaritan woman would have been something that no Jewish man would have done, and Jesus does it freely in this passage and she is struck by her conversation and if you were here during the past weeks Jesus confronts her in her sin 
Jesus explains to her how he can offer her eternal life, and he uses the illustration of living water. And he shows her the true nature of worship. And this passage, amongst many other things, teaches that no one is outside of the grace of God. That God personally seeks out sinners in order to bring them to himself, which is an amazing truth about Christianity that you won't find anywhere else. And then the passage continues today as she goes back to her village and brings the message of what Jesus said to her and invites everyone to come be around Jesus. And the whole village, the whole town, the whole city, whatever it is, is changed and there is a harvest, if you will, of souls as people are brought into the kingdom of God. People who are outside, who are not inside. People who are far from God, who are now close. That's what happens in this passage. And it shows us that Christians, that we as individuals, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are called to the work of soul harvest. That God invites us into this process with Jesus Christ to get engaged just like this woman was. But the problem in this passage is the disciples are completely blind to the harvest that's all around them. Have you ever been looking for something and just can't find it? Or maybe this is a better question. Have you ever been frustrated with someone who's looking for something and it's literally right in front of them? I see a lot of heads going off, right? Yeah, there you go, right? It's literally right in front of them. Oh, growing up, he's here this all the time. If it was a snake, it would have bit you. You know, you guys hear that all the time? I hear that all the time, right? And my sister calls it man looking, right? Man looking. Looking, quit. She'll be like, Matt, quit looking for it like a man. You know what I mean? And you do it all the time. And with kids, it's like, how many different places can you stick your shoes? Like, take them off. Put them in the shoe bin that says shoes. Like, and it just, you can't find the shoes, and they're right there. And so this is a mystery to me. I'm sure it's a mystery to you. But I actually like to inform you that psychologists have actually sought out to study this phenomenon. Okay? Um, and figure out not just why... Not just why kids can't find their shoes when they're in plain sight, but why we struggle looking for some of the things that are right in front of us all the time, okay? And so uh, they, their, their research guys, psychologists, sent out to this, and they, and they came up with something called the Invisible Gorilla Syndrome, okay? The Invisible Gorilla Syndrome, all right? So uh, these researchers made a video, and in the video there are two teams of people. Three of them have white shirts on, three of them have black shirts on, and they're two basketballs. And so what they do in this video is they, the team, white shirt team, passes the basketball back and forth, and black shirt team passes the basketball back and forth. And so the exercise at the beginning of the video is count how many times the white team passes the basketball. And so they're moving all around. You know, they're looping in and out around each other, and so it gets kind of blurry, and they're passing the ball. And so you're focused. Okay, one, two, three, four. And the video ends and goes, did you get how the number? The number was 15. And then the question is, but did you see the man in the gorilla suit? And the first time I watched this video, I didn't see him. In the middle of the video, this man in the gorilla suit walks up, beats on his chest, and then walks off the screen, and I completely missed it the first time I watched the video. I didn't even see it. Now, if you go back and watch the video, it's all you can see. But whenever I was counting the passes of the people in the white shirt, I missed the gorilla completely. And they found in this test that 40% of people never see their gorilla. 
at all. Some people can't recognize things that are right in front of them because they're distracted. Second reason psychologists found for this type of things was that oftentimes people are blinded by their beliefs. Psychologists found that people can't see what is in front of them because they have beliefs that are blocking their ability to believe. And I think this is the real reason behind looking for it like a man. Is because I think it's lost. And so I'm not really putting any effort into looking for it because I don't, I don't really care if I find it. You see what I'm saying? The beliefs blind us because we really don't think it's possible. And in a similar way in this passage, you see the invisible gorilla syndrome and being blinded by beliefs happening to the disciples. They have some false beliefs about the world that they're in that is blinding them to the harvest around them. And Jesus also points out that they're distracted. And it's blinding them as well. But let's look at God's word together. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. This is God's word. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. And even now the, he harvests the crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and they stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said now. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. God in heaven, as we consider your word, as we worship you over your word, I pray, God, that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together over this word, and that you would help us to worship you over the word, and be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a big idea for today. There is a soul harvest all around us, but we need God's help to see it. There is a soul harvest all around us, but we need God's help to see it. What I hope will happen this morning is that a few of your beliefs will be challenged by this passage in the same way that some of my beliefs were challenged 
by this passage. Some of the beliefs that, that we hold, that we probably came in here believing, is we don't believe that our simple witness about the reality of Jesus Christ in our life can have a transformative effect on our neighborhood, or our town, or the people we work with every single day. We don't believe that simple intentionality or an interest in someone's life can have a transforming effect just like Jesus' simple intentionality and interest in this woman's life did for her. We also believe that there are things more satisfying in life than following Jesus. And then finally, it was a struggle to believe, particularly perhaps because of the climate of the day that we live in, that there actually is a soul harvest all around us. And what I'd like to propose to you this morning is, uh, based on this passage, is that there are three obstacles that prevent us from seeing the harvest all around us. Three obstacles. Obstacle number one, the obstacle of unexamined beliefs. Obstacle number two, the obstacle of looking for satisfaction outside of God. And then obstacle number three, the obstacle of unbelief. Number one, the obstacle of unexamined beliefs. So I gave you a preview just a minute ago of the nature of what Jesus is doing and then what typical Jewish men in this day would have thought about that. They would have been appalled by the fact that Jesus was talking to this woman. They're shocked, right? And what's interesting, in, in verse 27 of chapter 4, we read this, Just then the disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking uh, with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Jesus is having a, a, the absolutely transformative conversation with her. He can see the light bulb going off in her heart as she, as she is being born again. She's being converted. This is an, she confesses that he might be the Messiah when she goes back into this town. We see that in this passage. The Greek word, thamazo, that in my translation is, is called surprise, can be amazed, marveled, surprised. I imagine the scene went something like this, right? They're walking up, chumming each other, hitting each other in the shoulder, laughing, talking, making fun of each other, because that's how men bond. We make fun of each other, right? That kind of thing. And then they stroll up onto the scene, and they're gobsmacked by the situation. And everything's silent. Maybe one of them drops the groceries. Like, what is going on here? They're amazed at this reality. The scene that they've walked up on is stirring to them. Why? Why? Why is it so stirring to them? Was Jesus in sin? They would have been tempted to believe that he was in sin, in talking to this woman. Why? And that goes into the point that I'm trying to make, the obstacle of unexamined beliefs. The disciples had very deep-seated beliefs that made them shocked that Jesus was talking to this woman. And leading her to himself. And Jesus is shocked by their shock. Okay? He, he's shocked by the fact that they're shocked. Alright, so some of the context, again, that we've mentioned, they hated Samaritans. And internally, they believed that they were beyond salvation. The salvation couldn't come to them. They weren't worth your time. In fact, they probably believed that they were unworthy of salvation. We were good Jewish people. Children of Abraham. We deserve salvation. They don't. Look at them. They're half-breeds, and they worship God in this synchronistic, paganistic way that we talked about in prior sermons. Okay? Secondly, that's the first 
belief they had that made this situation shocking. The second one is they believed deeply that women were not worthy of instruction. This is from one of the commentators that I read. His name's D.A. Carson. He said he was, he was talking about rabbis, right, the ones who were in charge of leading people spiritually and teaching them the word and things like this. They said rabbis never talked much to women, not even to their own wives. And to educate women was thought to be a waste of time and even sinful. This was what they believed, okay? This is what they believed. And then earlier, in the, later, in different times, as we look at Jesus' ministry, we can see the disciples kind of shunning women away from Jesus' presence. And children are the same way. Women and children were not thought of very highly in this society at all. And so what would happen? At one point in time, in Matthew 19, Jesus brings little children in, and, and little children are coming with their moms, and, Jesus said, and the disciples say, get out of here, you're not worth his time. And Jesus is furious over this. Okay? So this is one of the beliefs that they had, and it's why they were shocked. Now, you might want to write this down. Beliefs that are accepted before they are examined are dangerous. Beliefs that are accepted before they are examined are dangerous. We have a bad tendency, I've done this in the past many times, of getting our beliefs from others instead of developing them ourselves. There are several illustrations of that that we could point to and dive into in terms of our culture. We could talk about slavery and segregation and how those things could mix together, how so many people could believe deeply. We could talk about uh, Nazi Germany and the genocide of the Jews. And how the Jews believed, that, and so many of the Germans believed that Jews were an inferior race and responsible for all the problems that Germany was experiencing in that time. They believed it deeply. You should know why you believe what you believe. And you should find the reason for that in the Word of God. Cult leaders and tyrants prey on people who don't examine their beliefs, simply receive them. Okay? And we have a bad tendency not to test every one of our beliefs against the Bible, and the mission of God suffers as a result. Okay? In this passage, the beliefs that Jewish men were to treat Samaritans like they did, and that Jewish men were to treat women like they did, and that Jewish men were to treat uh, people who had sin in their life like they did can't be found anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere in the Old Testament. You can't defend any of those beliefs. The treatment of Samaritans, for example, that they should sun them and not be, them, not, not, not be involved with them at all because they worship differently than they do. I hope you heard from Josh's Scripture lesson a little while ago, the heartbeat of God has always been for the nations. Every single person, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Psalm 117, shortest psalm in the Bible, says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all you people. For great is His love towards us. Did you hear that? He didn't say great is His love towards Israel or the Hebrews or the Jews, but us, all the people of the earth. In Genesis chapter 12, when, when God is speaking to Abraham for the first time and creating this nation out of Abraham, this is what he says to him. The Lord has said to Abraham, leave your country and your people 
and your father's household and go to a nation that I will tell, tell that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make you grace great and I will make you a blessing listen to this so the Jews would have loved all that right make you a great nation all that stuff but then verse 3 I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and this and this and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you all of them you hear that that's the goal this verse that all peoples of the earth will be blessed you is repeated two more times in the book of Genesis in chapter 18, verse 18, chapter 22, verse 18. And I could go on and on and on. From Genesis 3 to the end of the Old Testament, it is chock full of the fact that God's heartbeat was for all the nations. And they didn't believe that. They didn't believe that. The Jews let their hatred drive their beliefs and not the word of God. The Jews had forgotten how gracious God had been to them to create them as a nation in the first place and to sustain them when they were sinful time and time and time and time again. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read this about God creating the Jewish nation. He says, Chapter 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Isn't that interesting? I didn't choose you because you were strong. I chose you because you were weak. They didn't believe that. How about the treatment of women? Where is that in the Bible? Okay, it's true. The priests and the prophets were men, and this was God's design. But women were extremely valued in Scripture. I could go uh, through a huge list. Rahab saves the spies. Miriam leads the nation in song in Exodus chapter 15. Deborah is a, jur uh, is a judge. Elijah is saved by a widow. Esther saves her people from genocide. Sisera drives a tent through um, the, the enemy general's temple when he comes to take a nap at her house. And there's an entire proverb devoted to the glory of womanhood at the end of Proverbs. Where did they get this idea from? I don't know, but they didn't get it from the Bible. Unexamined beliefs made the mission suffer. They had a deep-seated belief that blinded them to the soul harvest around them. Here's a woman. Does she put up a huge fight against believing in Christ? I mean, she asked some questions. But she's converted and runs back to the, to the village and brings them all back. This was ripe fruit right there, and they were blind because of their unexamined beliefs. She Look at the harvest that, she, that came from Jesus. So where does this leave us? I, I, I think that we really do need to understand um, the danger of not examining what we believe through the lens of Scripture. I think that's the first thing we need to do. We need to realize that, that, that sometimes we believe stuff because we want to believe it. Are, are we, we're sinful in our own natures. We are, we're warped inside, and we believe things because we want to believe it, right? Uh, other times, um, we, we use other people's word instead of a guideline, God, instead of Scripture as a guideline. This is dangerous, and it's crippling to the, to the harvest that's in front of us. The other thing I think we need to do, not just to understand that, but I think we need to assume that we have, uh, that we have unexamined beliefs. It, we do. I'm sure I do. We all have blind spots. You know, we, were, uh, we drive old cars because they're cheap, and 
we were in Nashville recently, and um, the couple we were staying with had a newer car. It wasn't brand new, but it was a newer car. And I was driving it somewhere, and I noticed that when a car came up in the blind spot, a little light came on. Do some of y'all's cars have that? I, again, I drive, all, all my cars are 10 years old, so that technology hasn't made it up to my level yet. You see what I'm saying? But I just thought it was cool. Every time a car passed through, that little light came on, a little indicator light, you know? I think we need to welcome that both in our own heart and from other people in our lives to realize that we have blind spots and we need trusted people to point them out in our lives. Let me give you a couple examples. So one of the questions I have for you if you're involved in community groups today is, is I hope you guys will get the chance to talk about maybe some of the unexamined beliefs that are common in Christianity today. Maybe that'll be a helpful conversation. And, and I could spend the, the whole rest of the sermon talking about each of these. I'm not. I'm just going to mention them. Okay? I, was just, I sat there for a few minutes, and I tried to think of what are some of the unexamined beliefs that are prevalent in Christianity today that are hurting the mission. Okay? I'm going to list some of them out for you. Number one, unexamined beliefs that are deeply affecting the mission of God. Okay? Number one, you don't need church to know God and to grow in Christ. You can do it on your own. You can do it by yourself. You don't need the church. Okay? Can you defend that biblically? You don't need the church to fulfill the mission of God. You can use uh, your, just another organization. You don't, that, that Jesus died to create this people, but we can use other organizations. You don't need the church to fulfill the mission of God. Here's another one, number three. You don't need to worship in person. Virtual church is enough. Number four, church membership is not that important. Number five, tithing is an Old Testament thing. Number six, women should have the same role, exact same role, as men in church. Number seven, as Christians, we should always submit to the government. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. We should just, li- number eight, we should just live out our Christian faith in front of people, and that will be enough. We don't actually need to open our mouth and say anything. Okay? Now again, Here's what I just did. See this can of worms? There it is. It's open, okay? And we're not going to deal with it for the rest of the time. But my point is to say this. I think there a lot of times is a lot of unexamined beliefs that we hold that we don't even realize we hold that are affecting the mission. And I think that's true for the disciples. There's a soul harvest all around us, but we need God's help to see it. Unexamined beliefs. Number two, looking for satisfaction outside of God. Verse 31, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? And my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me. With the woman, previously, Jesus uses his thirst as a, as, as a gateway to a conversation. And he does the same thing here. He uses his hunger and the fact that there's food available as a gateway to further conversation. His point, uh, his point was to show that the, wo- that the, the woman's excuse me, soul, uh, the, her thirst was a picture of the fact that her soul was thirsty. And Jesus is the same thing for the disciples. In this phys- he's using a physical situation to teach spiritual realities. And the woman get confused and the disciples get confused. And so Jesus has an opportunity then to talk with them further about what he's talking about. So this is this idea, I'm calling it soul food, okay? Soul food. 
All right? Jesus is pointing out this, this idea of soul food. All right? The disciples urged Jesus out of concern for him to eat. And then Jesus urged the disciples out of concern for them to realize that he had a nourishment that was deeper than food. And he took that moment. We need food to survive. Jesus is talking about something that we need to survive more than we need food. We need food for satisfaction. There's, there's few things better than, than having a wonderful meal and kicking back from the table. Jesus is teaching that there is something more critical to our satisfaction than food. We have a soul need and a soul satisfaction that food can't fill. Isn't it interesting that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and didn't die? Have you ever been so engrossed in something that you forget to eat? You're so interested in something, you're so involved with it that you forgot? Moses actually teaches this same principle that Jesus is teaching here in Deuteronomy. He says, remember when God fed you? It says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the desert those 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know where your heart was, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you this, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is teaching his disciples that their soul is hungry and food can't fill that hunger. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, that doing the will of God to Jesus Christ was necessary for survival and for satisfaction. And he takes this opportunity, even though I'm sure he's starving, he takes this opportunity to teach them Jesus has such a deep satisfaction in God that he doesn't mind serving and obeying them. And he's trying to show them that this is the only way they're ever going to find ultimate satisfaction. And the same is true for you and me. And one of the, this is where I'm getting the, the idea of the invisible gorilla syndrome. They're in a Samaritan town, and they're in a Samaritan town, and they're hungry, and so they go into town to buy groceries, and they're thinking about their food, and they're thinking about other things, and they just walk past the harvest. And this woman just goes and offers a word, and the whole town comes. This pagan, sinful woman was far more effective in the harvest than the ones that Jesus has been personally training. Why? Well, maybe one of the reasons, because they, they were distracted. They had a hunger that wasn't the hunger. Jesus' heart was not clouded or preoccupied with lesser things, and he was able to see the harvest that was all around him. And that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Is, is our soul hungry for submission to God? Isn't that a crazy way to say it? Doesn't that just sound weird? Are you hungry for submission to God? That's what Jesus says. The, the, the will, my will is to, do, is to do what the sender told me to do. I submit, I'll do it. That's what I'm hungry for. 
He's saying that his food, what he lives for and what he lives on, is to do the will of God. And so one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, is that what we hunger for? Is your soul hungry for obedience to the will of God? And if not, then what types of things are, is your soul hungry for? Because this passage teaches us that the only thing that's going to bring deep satisfaction, this is from the lips of God himself, is to do the will of the one who has sent you. That we have a higher purpose. That God has given us a higher purpose. One that is secure, one that is meaningful, and one that is joyful. And it's to participate in the soul harvest. I love how Foster says this all the time, and y'all have heard him say it if you've been around him, that you don't just go to work to make money. You go to work to infect that area with the gospel. You don't just live in your, neighbor, in your neighborhood just to be there and have a nice house. You live there to infect it with the gospel. And that is satisfying. And that's one of the things Jesus is saying. What do you want more than anything else in the world? Let me give you an illustration of how this played out in my life. So, like, I talk about it all the time. You know, you guys are sick of hearing about it, but you know that I'm trying to figure fishing out. And so I was in Walmart, and I was with Matthew, my, my youngest son, and um, we were in, well, my only son, but we were in Walmart, and I was looking at these lures, and I was kind of engrossed, and he was over there playing with the basketballs. And uh, a man walks up to me and goes, That's your, is that your son over there? Yeah, he's dribbling the ball. And he goes, he's going to do something with that ball. You know, he was saying, he's going to be a player. And I was so engrossed, I was like, yeah, thank you, appreciate it, Right? And I didn't realize that this, this guy standing in front of me wanted to get in a conversation. I could have gotten a conversation with this guy and invited him to church or learned more about his life. But you know what happened to me? I was distracted. And I missed an opportunity that was in front of me in the same way the disciples did in this passage. Looking for satisfaction in something other than the Lord. There is a harvest around us. Obstacle of unexamined beliefs. Number two, obstacle of looking for satisfaction outside of God. And then finally, the obstacle of unbelief. Jesus says in verse 35, For you do, you do, not, do you not say, excuse me, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe with harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wage. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So imagine, this is what uh, some of the commentators that I read mentioned this, and I think they're right about this, that Jesus, as Jesus is saying this, he's probably pointing to the distance where the people are actually walking towards him. And so you're saying, just like y'all can look at a field and say, hey, about four more months, and the wheat crop's going to be ready, look, boys, right out there. There they are. They're coming. Notice it. He gives us Wonderful agricultural illustration. Jesus gives so many helpful illustrations. And he says, sowers prepare the soil for a seed. You know, they plow it, put the seed in. Reapers get to bring in the harvest. It's fully grown, ready to go, ready to be used. They bring it in. And sometimes in that society, hired workers would do either or. Sometimes they would do both. Sometimes hired workers would specialize in the harvesting part of it. Sometimes they would specialize in the sowing part of it, laying it all out there. But he's saying in this situation, you get to be the harvester for something that you didn't even plant. Jesus planted it. Jesus planted the seed in this woman. 
It came to fruition, and then she went and planted the seed. It's coming to fruition, and they're coming. He's saying to his disciples, look, look, the harvest is so plentiful that you're going to get a chance to bring the crop in of something that you didn't even work hard for. Open your eyes, he's saying to them, and look at what God, what's happening about us, around us, rather. So what does this passage, specifically this section, teach us about the soul harvest, about helping people to know God, helping people to find God? Well, I think it teaches us several things. I think it teaches us that it takes time often for God to work in people's lives. And sometimes you're the sower. You sow the seed. You put it in the ground. The plant doesn't pop up instantaneously. Sometimes you're sowing. And then I think that that another thing it teaches us is that God uses people along the way to plant the seed and harvest the seed to bring people to eternal life. I think it also teaches us that, that some people God uses to sow and other people God uses to harvest. And I think it also teaches us that sowing the seed of the gospel, teaching someone about Jesus Christ in someone's soul, is is the work of explanation, encouragement, and rebuke of sin, which is what Jesus did to her. Encouraged her, explained things to her, rebuked her sin. And then finally, I think we see here that harvesting the crop is leading people to faith in Christ, which is exactly what happened in this passage. You know, it's interesting. Jesus spends all this time with his disciples, and we don't get to see all of their interactions. We get to see a good bit of them. And late in the Gospels, we, we see Peter finally make the profession, you are the Christ. For this woman, it didn't even take a day. Isn't that interesting? Some people, it takes a long time. That's okay. For others, the ground has been prepared beforehand. You see what I'm saying? What role do you have in people's life? I hope both. I hope you'll get an opportunity to sow and reap. I know I've had that opportunity. So here's the question. Do you believe that there is a harvest all around you? I think the fact that the disciples thought that since they were in Samaria, they could take time off from the work. Or maybe it was because they were tired and hungry. They could take time off for the work. And Jesus says, no, it's right here. Their unbelief, you you catching this? Their unbelief about the reality of the harvest made them blind to it. They didn't believe it was real. Do you believe your neighbor can get saved? Do you believe that as crazy as our world seems, that God could do something that if he were to tell us, we wouldn't believe it right now? How powerful do you think God is? Do you think that your simple witness about what God's doing in your life can have a transformative effect on the person who sits next to you every day. Do you really believe that? For me, what had to happen is I had to be faithful before God let me see any fruit. I didn't believe it because I'd never seen it before. But I knew that I was responsible for sharing the gospel with people, and so I learned how to do it from someone who was good at it. And I was just faithful even though I didn't really believe I was going to see a lot of fruit. But I just was faithful because it's what God called me to do. And then I started seeing fruit. I started seeing a handful of people come to know Christ. And now I start to expect it. 
whenever I give the gospel to people. So I think it might be something you have to taste before you can really believe it. I think that's what happened to these guys in this passage. They saw this, these hordes of people coming to know Christ, and they didn't think that was possible. And I think that might have changed their mind. So are you willing to be faithful before you see any fruit on the topic of evangelism? When we look at this passage, what I, what I want to encourage you is with, in, in conclusion, is the simple steps that we're taking. And I want you to ask this question, can I do these things? All right, we're almost done, listen up. Can I do these things? I want you to see the simple things that were done in this passage that had a profound effect. Jesus simply took interest in the soul of this woman. This woman was a simple witness about what Jesus had done for her. And this woman brought people to Jesus to see him for themselves. That was it. Can you take interest in the people around you and just simply learn more about them? Just simply learn where they're from, what they like. Just learn more about them. Yeah, you can. I've seen you guys do it all the time. Can you then make the transition that Jesus made in this passage and ask them about their soul? And that's kind of hard, I know. But I'd like to give you two questions that have changed my life because they're really unassuming and people tend to let their guard down and like to answer the question. Two questions, number or statements. Tell me your spiritual story. Tell me about your spiritual story. I probably say that all the time. Someone that I'm getting to know, hey, tell me your spiritual story. I've yet to see, heard somebody say no. They're like, okay, sure. And the other one I use sometimes is, hey, what do you think about God's stuff? You know, and people like to talk about it. All right, so take interest in people, find a way to ask them about their soul, and then please hear me say this. I've said this several times before. Evangelism is getting people in front of Jesus. Evangelism is getting people in front of Jesus. That's what this woman did. How can you get them people in front of Jesus Christ? Get them in the Word of God or get them in the worship of God. Get them in the Word of God or get them in the worship of God. Evangelism is just getting people in front of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting how this passage concludes? Jesus says, uh, the, the people go back to the woman and they say, we, we, we don't believe anymore just because you told us. We believe because we met him. Right? We don't, we don't believe, and it says a few people believed on the basis of this woman's testimony, but uh, the whole town did once they really got around Jesus. In other words, Jesus did the heavy lifting. They just, all she did was bring them along for the ride. Intentionally show interest in people, ask about their soul, get them in front of Jesus, either in the word or in worship. Um, this, these realities have changed my life in terms of how I think about um, of how I think about evangelism. Again, so we talked about three obstacles this morning. Unexamined belief, satisfaction outside of God, and then unbelief. And so one of the final questions I'll ask is, if wherever you're sitting this morning, does your soul need to be harvested? Maybe you're hearing this and, and you're asking yourself the question, do I know Jesus like this woman came to know Jesus? Then they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Can you say that? 
I hope you can today. And then finally, for those of you who call Jesus king, do you want to be part of the soul harvest? That's why we exist, guys. God has invited us into this reality to be a part of the soul harvest that is all around us that Jesus made available through the cross and the resurrection from the grave. There is a harvest of souls all around us and we need God's help to see it. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, I pray that as we are here today, I pray, God, that you would help change our beliefs, rewire us in a way so that we can come to believe and know that there is a harvest all around us. Would you open our eyes? Would you help us to examine the beliefs that we have? Would you, would you help us to find our satisfaction in you? And Lord, would you do a work not for the glory of King's Church, not for my glory, not for the glory of anybody else's, but for your glory and the people around us good, that we would see a soul harvest in a similar way that we see in this chapter. For the good of our neighbors, friends, co-workers, who are close to us but far from you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.